0: Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt. I'm on staff here at Dwell Church. Um, I have to confess real quick that um, I have just recently been wrestling with two of my greatest fears this morning. Uh, The first one is... So I have the Brittany mic on right now, right? And I had it on during worship, and uh, I was like, man, if for some reason the tech team decides to play a late April Fool's joke on me, and everyone hears me sing during worship, like, we're all going to be done for. So that was fear number one. Fear number two, um, when Aaron got up to read our Palm Sunday passage from Matthew 21, I was like, that's not what I prepared this morning. <laughs> I... <laughs> We are done for. This is not good. So um, we are actually doing Matthew 12 this morning, 46 to 50, thankfully. So uh, I'm excited to bring that to you guys this morning. So um, let's get into it. For this passage, I feel like I've read this sort of saying from Jesus many, many times throughout the Gospels, and my mind automatically just comes to this train of thought of like, yeah, 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 of course, Jesus. Um, Like what you're saying sounds great. The Church is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving away. like, I get it, Jesus. Um, you want us to know that Christians, the church, the body of believers, were a family. And so every time I've read this passage or similar ones in the other gospels, I think these things. And I don't think these things are wrong because I think he's speaking to the fact that the church is a family, but guys. These words from Jesus, I think, are actually so much more than I, and maybe even you, have taken them to be. Like, these are game-changing words by Jesus in this passage right here. And I'm about to tell you why. Sorry, this floor is so creaky. I need to stop moving. Um, so first, let's put this, in, this put into perspective, the seriousness of Jesus' mother and brothers here in this passage. So, okay, a day's journey at the time was about 20 to 25 miles. And according to scholars, his family made about a 30-mile journey from Nazareth to Capernaum to come see Jesus. So they're taking about a day, a day and a half to come see him, which means another day and a half to go back. So that's, the math is three days out of their week to come see him. And like, this wouldn't have been like a posh, easy, chill journey with like Taco Bell on the way, Chick-fil-A, whatever you want to do to refill, like those wouldn't have been readily available for them. Like it was a serious journey by foot. Like this would be like us walking from Denver here to like Idaho Springs or like downtown Boulder, right? So they are seriously trying to get to Jesus. But why? Like why go through all that effort to get to him? Theologian Charles Spurgeon has this to say on the matter. He says, The members of his family had come to take him because they thought him beside himself. No doubt the Pharisees had so represented his ministry to his relatives that they thought they had better restrain him. And then the gospel of Mark supports Spurgeon's claim. Mark 3:21 reads, "And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind." And so they were serious about this because they cared about their family's reputation. They weren't elated that people, especially these religious leaders, thought their son and brother had gone off the deep end. Like They weren't re- willing to sit around and let their family name go down the drain. So check out verse 46 with me. It reads, While he was still speaking to the people, his family came asking to speak to him. So this is another sign of their seriousness here because we can actually see in the text that his mother and brothers are interrupting his teaching. So while he's in the middle speaking to the crowd and then the disciples, someone comes up to Jesus and tells him, he's like, hey, yo, mom's outside, brothers are here, like, should probably do something about that, right? I can only imagine what I would do if my mom came up and wanted to speak to me right here, right now. Like, I'd be done for. But at the same time, like, I don't think in good conscience I would just be able to to sort of ignore her and not acknowledge that she's there. And I don't think Jesus is simply trying to ignore his family. Like he has a point to how he responds here, and we'll get to that later. But it is kind of weird that he doesn't go and get like some FaceTime with them, show them some love, right? Like it seems a little bit rude, cold, his response here is somewhat prideful, maybe even giving the feeling that he thinks he's better off without them. I think at face value it feels this way. <clears throat> but here's the thing. Jesus knows why they're there. He knows the thoughts in their heads. He knows their motives. But I think even more than knowing their motives and not wanting to feed into his family's desire to seize him, and maybe their even desire to attempt to have some control over him, like I think he wants to prove a point. He wants to prove a point about family. And I've got to say, I actually, I really love the way he does this. Jesus isn't forceful, right? Right? He's not angry. He's just collected, and in such a tactful way, he responds to his family showing up. In first 48, you see, he says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Jesus simply poses a question. Now, why would Jesus ask such a plain and obvious question? He does this because what their response to this question would be versus the response he's about to give is drastically different. You see, in this traditional non-Western culture that they're in, they had a very, very high view of family. Really, not just a high view, like family was everything. They were utterly dependent on family. Now, this is a little bit of a foreign idea in our day and age in Western society, right? We're not as reliant on family as people, like even in other countries and in cultures in our day. And we're definitely not as reliant on our family as the people of Jesus' time were. Like, for instance, how do we get our food today? It's not a trick question. It's like grocery store, right? Chick-fil-A, not today, but most days. Like, they would have been depending on their family for food. How do we get our money so that we can survive and function in society? Our jobs. Like They would have been dependent on their family for surviving financially. Not only that, Your family was where you found your worth, your value, your status, your security. Your family were the ones who gave you an inheritance. Your children were the ones who took care of you when you couldn't. Your family ultimately provided you with the security you needed to live a full and prosperous life until the day you died. In this regard, Tim Keller said it well. He said, Nearly all ancient religions and cultures made an absolute value of the family and of the bearing of children. There was no honor without family, and there was no real lasting significance or legacy without leaving heirs. Without children, you essentially vanished. You had no future. The main hope for the future then was to have children. So to summarize all of this, the idea was that without your family, you would be seen as as sort of a lowlife, you'd be shunned your survival rate would drastically decrease, and you'd ultimately be just done for. Like we we see this concept in the book of Ruth as one example, like Ruth is this Moabite woman who marries this guy from Judah and then her husband dies and Ruth becomes a childless widow and she chooses to actually bound herself to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi was grateful for this because she was alone now that her son had died. But Naomi also protested against this at first because she was like, Ruth, how are you and I going to survive? Like, your husband, my son is gone, so what are we going to do? And the story ends with God ultimately providing for them. But Naomi and Ruth, they understood that their survival rate drastically decreased when they lost that big piece of their family. So with this very high view of family in mind, we can know that those hearing the words of Jesus In this passage, they would be just shocked. In verse 49 and 50, Matthew writes, And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Like if you looked around the room right after Jesus had said this, I imagine, I'm not positive, but I imagine you'd probably have seen some people's heads exploding. You would see some jaws on the ground, just disbelief. This was a brand new, like groundbreaking, foreign idea. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my family, is part of the family of God. Now this is groundbreaking in the sense that those who do the will of the Father have more of a duty to God than their own biological family. But it also continues to enforce the good news Jesus has already been spreading. The good news that there is no longer just an elect few who are chosen by God and considered his people, but that all are welcome, Jews and Gentiles alike. The key, Jesus says, those who do the will of my Father. Those who choose to put their trust and faith in Jesus and follow him. So this claim by Jesus shatters their understanding of really the only practical way they had known how to survive and thrive, through family. And it actually opens up the people to a new and better way to live. So in comparison to the people of Jesus' time, we live in a much less family-driven culture, right? And so this news of those who do the will of the Father in heaven being your family, this news isn't quite as like mind-boggling to us or life-altering. But the words of Jesus still hold weight for us today. So that means that these words from Jesus showing us this new and better way to live, that means they should shape how we live as Christians. So with that in mind, here are four truths that I want to go through that should help encourage and challenge us as we seek to hold tightly to the words of Jesus and seek to live in his new and better way for us. So truth number one, our future is not guaranteed by our family but by God. Obviously today, we've learned, or at least have been reminded of the fact that family was of utmost importance to the people in the time of Jesus. They were absolutely reliant on family. So in pointing to the disciples and saying, these people who do the will of my father are my mother and brothers, Jesus is implying that contrary to what they had thought, their future is not guaranteed by their family, but it's guaranteed by God. So your family is of value, and they can help provide for your needs. But at the end of the day, God is the one who ultimately provides. He is the one who knit you together in your mother's womb. And he is the one who decides when you breathe your last breath. God guarantees your future, no one else. He is the perfect father, and he holds our lives and our future in his hands and says, I'm the one who has you, I'm the one who holds you, I'm the one who sustains you. So God guarantees our future when we come to him. Truth number two, our value and worth doesn't come from our family. Just as this would have hit hard for the people hearing this from the mouth of Jesus, It should also hit us hard due to the implications of his words. The words of Jesus in this passage free us from being a slave to the expectations of our family. So when we follow Jesus, we are no longer tied to the approval of our family, but instead we are bound to the duty of worshiping and pleasing God. Now, just because we aren't tied to our family doesn't mean we have a license to sever family ties or like neglect our family. I'm not saying that. You don't want to throw those relationships away. The goodness of family is a gift from God, and we are to enjoy it. But it's just not the ultimate gift. The gift of being brought into the family of God through the work of Jesus on the cross, that is the ultimate and better gift. And because our worth doesn't come from our worldly family, but instead it comes from our Heavenly Father, we are able to live more freely. We are able to live more freely by the word of God and his commandments instead of living by the word of your parents or your siblings or your kids. Now, if you're following the will of God for your life, there, there's a chance your family may disagree with you. That's just the reality, but that's okay. I have a friend here in Denver, actually, who has gone into ministry, and his dad was just, like, distraught over it, not pleased at all. Just confused. Like, why would my son make a career out of this? Like, it doesn't make any sense. He just didn't get it. I have another friend who him and his wife uprooted their life in the States to go serve as missionaries in Turkey. So they left everything, right? They left careers here, they left friends, and they left family. Some of their family was supportive, but a lot of their family was blatantly against it. They were essentially like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, you guys are crazy. Why would you move to Turkey? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And so both of these people, they had to reconcile with this. They had to come to terms with the fact that that's how it's going to be. And they did this by resting in the truth that there's no pressure to please their family and succumb to their every wish and desire for them. See, these, these people, they knew... It's ultimately not about them. We should know it's not about us, but it's about God. And until we actually believe that our life is about God and his glory, I'm not not sure we can fully embrace the fact that our worth and value does come from God. And so since our value and worth legitimately comes from God and not our family, we have freedom to seek God in his glory above all else. And that's even if it means disappointing family. Truth number three, the church is our truest family. Okay, this is not an attempt to try and slight you for loving your family, like not in the, not in the slightest. You should love your family because like I said earlier, family is a gift from God and it should be cherished. Jesus didn't hate his family in this passage, like he loved them, and he doesn't really ignore them as much as he's actually just making a point that the family of God is our truest family. I think what helps us grow in embracing the church as our truest family and making it priority in our lives is when we bond with our fellow Christians, right? I mean, think about this. There's actually potential for Christians for us here to be bonded closer to each other than what like DNA or blood could ever bond. This works out because as part of the family of God, we share the single greatest bond that any people share. We share the common bond of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. The family of God all share in the belief that we are weak and we are broken sinners in need of saving. Romans 3.23 reminds us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because of this, we also share the greatest gift one could ever receive, and that is the gift of Jesus. The fact that all of us in God's family have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus and his death on the cross in our place, guys, That that is the ultimate bond. That is what drives us to grow closest to our church family. These gospel beliefs and experience, man, they create a bond between Christians that is stronger than any other connection. I mean, think about some of your best connections with people. Like, I share a great liking and enjoyment of rock climbing, and so my buddy Roth and I, he's become a good friend, and we've probably climbed three, four, five hundred routes together. Some of my, like, hardest, longest, most physically demanding days have been with him. And, like, literally our lives are in each other's hands, And so we've like bonded over that stuff. You may share a passion for, I don't know, Arkansas football or Vandy football or Auburn football, or even Alabama white cheese. Maybe you've grown closer with others through watching The Bachelor together. You could have adopted a child with someone or fostered a kid or even just had a child together. I am sure that bonds people greatly. Or it could be that your nephew decides to get a mullet because you have one. And there's no way anything else in the world could cause a stronger bond than the mullet bond, right? There's no way. These commonalities and bonds, man, they are all well and good, but they just don't compare. That's just the reality. They don't. I have this excerpt that I want to read from a book called A Gospel Primer, and um. Honestly, it's just good, so I'm just going to read it. So here it is. That Jesus was willing his life to lay down, be scourged and insulted and wear thorny crown. For one such as I, who had spited God so, amazes and blesses and makes me to know that greater a lover is no man than he who laid down his life for a sinner like me. Guys, this is the common bond that the family of God shares. And that is why the church is our truest family. And so what Jesus did for us, this should direct us to live in a certain way. And that leads us into truth number four. Truth number four is, the family of God is to be of utmost importance to the Christian. So Jesus says, those who do the will of my father are my brothers and sisters and mother. In saying what he says here, he's making it the norm that those who are in the family of God actually have the privilege of being a priority in our lives. We actually see this being true in the life of Jesus as he lived out his last few years on this earth, investing heavily in his disciples who would later go on to form the church. His disciples, whom he pointed to saying, these are my brothers and sisters and mothers, they were of utmost importance to him. Like he spent countless hours with them. He loved them, even when they would later deny him and betray him. He ate with them, he prayed with them, he served them. He even had his final meal with them right before he died for them. So He didn't just know them. But he did the will of the Father along with them. We are to be like Jesus in this. The family of God is to be a priority for us as we seek to do the will of the Father together. I, I love that Jesus doesn't just say, those who know the Father are my mother and brothers, but he says, those who do the will of the Father. This guy wants action, right? (laughs) Big action guy, Jesus, you can see here. This means that in order for this major cultural shift to happen in the church, of biological family going from being of ultimate importance to God and his family being of ultimate importance, there has to be some skin in the game. That was true then, and it's also still true now. There has to exist in us a deep commitment to Christ and his church. Now, this is a type of commitment that doesn't waver in the face of, of conflict, of doubt, of fickleness, of lack of desire, apathy, lack of emotional connection when you're not feeling it. like These things are not what keep us committed. We find our deep commitment through Jesus because in his kindness, he first and forever committed to us. So to do the will of the Father, as Jesus says, is to be committed to his church. So then what does that look like? I think it looks like showing up on Sundays, making that a priority. I don't want to be too obvious. I think it looks like having some sort of rhythm of serving at the church. I think it looks like sacrificing for your brothers and sisters, which means possibly giving up something you love or enjoy for something else someone loves and enjoys. It's a tough one. I'm bad at that one. I think it looks like sharing meals together. I'll say that's an easier one for me, especially when your dwell group people make fantastic tamales and chicken pot pie. I think it it looks like coming alongside each other in our hurts and struggles and our tears, but also coming alongside in our joys. I think it looks like praying together and praying for your brothers and sisters even when you're not together. Another hard one. I think it looks like consistently loving and caring and being there for one another. And I think consistency is key in all of this. You know, like we talked about Jesus with his disciples, he was consistent. And I'm not saying you or I are going to do this perfectly, like, we don't, I don't. But in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus reminds us that by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I mean, that should be all we need to hear, right? To know that the family of God should be a priority to us. Like, I was kind of thinking about uh, the burden that family can, can feel like they are sometimes, Right? Uh, and I think this is often the case. It can, you can also feel this way with the family of God. It feels burdensome. But if it is a burden, like, isn't it kind of a joyous one? Like, I think I was thinking about, like, a baby, if you had a baby. I've never owned one, but uh, if you did, I've worked with them as a nurse. And so I understand they are a burden. <laughs> like, they, what do they do? They, they eat, they go to the bathroom, and they get mad at you. They they yell and scream and cry, right? It's hard work to take care of them. They're a burden. They They don't give you anything in return, at least not instantly. But I can only imagine as a parent, like this is, it is such a joyous burden to be had, right? Shouldn't that be the same with the family of God? Shouldn't it be just a joyous burden if it does feel like a burden? It is truly, truly such a sweet picture of what this world is supposed to look like when we are all doing our part in being committed to the family of God. I think one of the amazing things about God's family is that it isn't exclusive. God is demanding. He demands our obedience. But he's not exclusive. It's actually God's desire that others would come to know the grace of Jesus, what he did for them on the cross so that they may experience the riches of God and life in his family. Like it should be our joy to want to see that. To want to see others lovingly welcomed in just as we have been. Just uh, one more family text or uh, portion of scripture here for you right here. Family of God comes from Ephesians 2, 18 to 19. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Let's go. That's good. I just want to end our time today in the Word uh, with this quote from theologian Matthew Henry. I thought it was a, a good kind of like synopsis of what Jesus is saying in this passage here. He says, not that under pretense of religion we may be disrespectful to parents or unkind to relations, but the lesser duty must stand by while the greater is done. Let us cease from men and cleave to Christ. Let us look upon every Christian in whatever condition of life as the brother, sister, or mother of the Lord of glory. Let us love, respect, and be kind to them for his sake and after his example. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.